Well, dear friends, dear congregation, I invite you now to please turn your very prayerful attention if you have your Bibles open there in the book of Acts and the chapter 2, that passage that I read to you in your hearing. And as you're turning there, I remind you of the subject that has already been announced over the last few weeks. We've advertised this subject, perhaps an unusual subject for our young people's meetings, but I feel a very necessary one. The subject of baptism and church membership. And we see those two things taking place here in the book of Acts and the chapter 2. This was a very auspicious day, a momentous day, here on the day of Pentecost, where we read that men were given this supernatural gift to speak in foreign languages. And people were hearing the word of God from Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and all over Libya, the wondrous works of God and what Christ had wrought there upon the cross, how he died for his people, how he who is the Son of God and who has also become the Son of Man and the creator of all things died for the creature. Apostle Paul could say the Son of God that loved me and gave himself for me. I wonder here this afternoon, who are the Lord's people? The Lord's people will always act upon God's word, sometimes not always so swiftly and as quickly as they ought to. We come to a subject that really needs to be addressed. I want to say, first of all, by way of introduction, my motives, the preacher's motives. Firstly, let me say, this might seem very odd, it gives me no pleasure at all. But it pains me to say that although this is a most basic and elementary subject, the subject of baptism and church membership, it has been so badly neglected, young people, in so many places, and in some places has been completely ignored, this whole subject of baptism and church membership. If not ignored, it's been avoided. And particularly avoided by even men who would call themselves preachers who have never been called to preach by a church, never been ordained, and that's why they won't preach on baptism and church membership, because they themselves very often are not church members. And sometimes even some of them have never been baptized. These two things we'll see go together. And uh, this is sadly a subject that is so greatly neglected today because there are so many charlatan preachers, so many men who are standing up in pulpits who have never been called to preach the word of God and will not address the subject of baptism and church membership. These two, as you will see in this chapter, go together. Now perhaps you have been taught it in your local church by your faithful pastor. And I don't wish to undermine his work. But I hope that what I'll be saying today will serve to just reinforce what he has been teaching you and what you need to, again, be reminded of and tell others of those who would profess to be Christians that have not submitted themselves to the ordinance of baptism and the commandment to join in the body of Christ and to be part of that body 
of Christ. Now, to ignore this subject is sin. To ignore the plain teaching of God's holy word on the subject is great sin. But it would always be to the terrible detriment and demise of somebody's soul. You know, if you claim to be a Christian, no part of God's word are you and I ever to say, well, that is, that's not important for me. That's not a subject that I need to put, as it were, on the back burner for now. All that will do is cause harm to one's soul. All that will do, and it's true to say I've known people who have professed to be Christians for many years, some who have never been baptized, and some who have never been a member of a local church. And as you look at their lives, we're not being judgmental here, they've hardly done anything for the Lord. They've not grown in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ either. But for many years they have spiritually stagnated because they have failed to obey God's teaching on this subject, on these two subjects. And in fact, what they've actually done is they've even hardened their conscience against the Word of God. You see, to ignore God's Word is not only to the detriment of your soul, but it is to harden your conscience. So therefore, there will be other parts of the Word of God where the person will say, well, I've ignored God's word there, I can ignore it here. And that just not only affects your growth as a Christian, but it dumbs the conscience, it sears the conscience. You know what a seared conscience is? If you were to take a hot iron, and you were to put a hot iron on your skin, it'd be painful at first. But the next time you put that hot iron there, you don't feel it as much. And that's what we mean by a seared conscience, a conscience that has been hardened to hearing the truth. And because we hear it and we don't act upon it, it's easier the next time. And people, let me say, young people, there are people who have gone on for decades that have not submitted to God's word concerning these two fundamental issues. Now, here in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, what we have really is the blueprint of the early church. Fifty days after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know it wasn't long after that, that as he had said in the early part of Acts chapter 1, that he would send the Holy Spirit. Penta, after 50 days, he sent his spirit. And the church now, Peter stands up and he begins to declare Jesus Christ to the very men, women, and even children who were crying, many of them Jews, crucify him, crucify him. The Son of God, put him to death. And they realized, after Peter preached, who it was, though many of the people that were crying out, crucify him, didn't really even know him. They knew that he was a great miracle worker, that he preached tremendous sermons, and that he spoke the truth, and he only went about doing good. And yet his own people, the Jews, 
and the Gentiles. And Pontius Pilate and Herod put him to death. And preacher exposed to them who it was that was put to death. Even the very creator of the world, the Son of God. But furthermore, Peter explains that it was the predeterminate purpose and counsel and foreknowledge of God to put his son to death, that there upon the cross as he was suffering, as he was dying, he would be the sin bearer of his people. Now on that day, we read that there were over 3,000 people that were not only cut in their heart and received Peter's word, but were baptized and were added to the church. They became church members. Now, one thing we want to do, very often people do not act upon what the Word of God teaches. And I mentioned that there are people that have never been either baptized and or joined themselves to a local church and been part of the life and ministry of that church. And that would be wrong. People that have truly been saved, been convicted in their heart, and it's sin. We read in Mark 16, 16, whosoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Whoever believeth not shall be damned. Baptism is something so basic to believing. As we'll see, it's a picture of what God has done in the heart. The person has died to the old self and is now raised in newness of life with Christ. But on the other hand, let me say, there are many people, on the other hand, that have been baptized, that have become church members, that should never have been baptized and should never have become church members either. So we need to make sure that we get things right here this afternoon, no doubt. And therefore, I give this also as a warning to our own hearts to examine ourselves, whether we are the Lord's. Now, my aim as a pastor is to teach young people here the Word of God and what the Bible commands us with regards to baptism and church membership, and really to spare young people from such a tragedy that I've been speaking about, how maybe you even know people who are much older and who are professed Christians and have gone on for decades and never really been any contribution to others in the Christian faith and to the church life, have never really wanted to be committed and answerable to the local body of God's people. My desire is to steer you from such a wicked course, from such a terrible course, to steer you from a sort of self-styled kind of Christian life and to bring you and I to see once again what the Word of God really teaches about baptism and church membership. And of course, therefore, there will be two basic questions to deal with this afternoon. And the first is this, who is to be baptized? And it's very clear from this passage we know when John the Baptist was baptizing in the wilderness and there the Lord Jesus Christ came and 
Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees saw those who had repented of their sins and were being baptized. It was a baptism of repentance. And John, as he saw the Pharisees who were hypocrites, he said to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he said, go forth and bear fruit worthy or meet or in keeping with repentance. And say not to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Baptism is not for those who simply have some ancestry in the church. You don't get baptized because of your mother, your father, or anything like that. That is something we've got to be warned against. But in Acts chapter 2, we will see on this great auspicious day of Pentecost, as Peter was preaching, preaching how these sinners who he was preaching to, and all of them were sinners, even those who didn't repent, every single one of them were sinners, how he preached to them, how they cried out for the death of the Son of God, and that he was put to death. And he didn't say that some of them here were righteous, but all were unrighteous. We read, look at verse 22 of Acts 2. Ye men of Israel, and I want you to notice here in the first place, Peter is preaching the word of God to sinners. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was God's plan. This was God's purpose. Although they did this, although they put him to death and cried, crucify him, God even worked through their evil. God not putting the evil disposition in their hearts. And yet it was God's predetermined counsel, foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands, your wicked hands, he says, have crucified and slain. He was preaching to sinners. All of them were sinners. Whether they were directly involved with his death or not, the Bible says all are guilty before God. No, not one are righteous. And why ultimately did Christ go to the cross? Well, for sin. Not just on the account that sinners were crying, crucify him, crucify him. But he would go to the cross for sinners. If you just turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And look at verse 3. Paul here is speaking about the resurrection of the believer, that his body will go to the grave, just as Christ did, but one day it will be raised up. But first, before he gets to that, he speaks of why Christ died. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, According to the scriptures, he's speaking here to these Corinthian church members. He's writing to a church. 
He's not writing to the whole world, but he's writing to the church of God. And he says that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, this was God's purpose. Men did not know this, that while men would put him upon a cross, in his last few hours the father would forsake his son, would spare not his son, but would deliver him up to divine justice and judgment. That the father would turn, as it were, his face from the sun, as the heavens were turned from light to darkness. God turned midday to midnight. And we read that the heavens were blackened. And Christ cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then at the end of it, we read as the sun came out, and Christ cried, It is finished. The justice that he bore was complete. Divine justice he bore upon the cross. And then he went to the grave, didn't he? And you see, Peter here is preaching to sinners. And amongst those sinners, there would be those for whom Christ has died. Those who will be pricked in their hearts, not only by the word, but by the spirit of God. These, as we will see, are the called according to God's purpose. And he is preaching. Yes, there were many here that were directly involved with this, but they weren't really pricked in the heart. And there's a difference, as we will see. Verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Death could not hold Christ because he was without sin. Yes, he took the sin of his people, but he suffered the full wrath of an almighty God against that sin that he was bearing, as he was being the substitute for many. Yeah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was put to death, but the grave could not hold him. Well, again, Paul tells us, does he not in Romans 8, God spared not his own son, but delivered him up. He delivered him up for his people. And his people will hear. And they're hearing the word of God now. Many of them, 3,000 souls here this day. And they pricked. Now I want you to notice something else he says. If you look at verse 25 to verse 28, Peter tells them that it was all that fulfillment of God's promise in the Old Testament. This is what the Old Testament's been teaching. Young people, those of you who are not saved, if you were to read the Word of God, the Old Testament, the Psalms, are wonderful prophecies. David, the great ancestor of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus being his great, the greater son, would sit on a throne one day. And that he, though he would be put in the grave, his body would not see corruption. And David wrote that Psalm 24. He was not speaking of himself. Thou will not see thy holy one to see corruption. But he was speaking of Christ who was to come and who did come. 
If you look, verse 25, For David speaketh concerning him, and this, by the way, is a reference to Psalm 16, verses 8 to 10, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one, referring to Christ, to see corruption. So David spoke of him prophetically, looking ahead and then in the fullness of time. God did send his son. And you read on here, he goes on in verse 29, he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, David was a prophet, you see, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus God hath raised up, whereof you are all witnesses. You've seen it, he says. Therefore, being on the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, that is this, the Holy Spirit, as he promised he would send, which ye now see and hear. Now notice, verse 34 is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith of himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. That's where Christ is now. Having accomplished his work, he is now in heaven. And he has sat at the Father's right hand as prophet, priest and king and he is coming again young people and every eye we are told will see him even them that pierced him never repented of their sins everyone will see him now notice as it moves on you look at verse 37 now when they heard this they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do could you imagine the news and you hearing that you were put to death, the very Son of God, the creator of the world? We're undone. What shall we do? Our sin. Crucify him. Crucify him. Yes, but he was also being the sin bearer of his people at the same time. While they were put there by their sin and their sayings, Put him to death. What shall we do? You see, salvation, as we will see, is not by works, but by the works of another. The first thing he says, he answers their question. Repent. That's what he said. Isn't this what Peter says? What shall we do? The question is, we've done wrong. What shall we do? Now notice, he says, repent. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 
Now, several things we need to see here. So we're looking, first of all, at baptism. Now, the first thing with regards to baptism is the sinner must see that they are great and unworthy sinners. Cut to the heart. And my friend, let me ask you that. Are you somebody that sees yourself as guilty before the Son of God? They could see a direct involvement, but it's true for every one of God's people. They know and they believe that Christ died for their sins, as we read there, didn't we, from 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And God has revealed that. I am a sinner. I am unworthy. I have sinned against God. I've even taken maybe his name in vain. I've broken all of his commandments. I'm no better than these men. I've sinned against the Son of God. I have not honored him in my life. You see, Jesus Christ is God. There's one lawgiver. Christ is the one who gives the Ten Commandments. We're told in the Psalms that he was there upon Mount Sinai when there were a myriad of angels. We don't read that in Exodus, but we read it in Psalms. When the law was given. And we know in our own hearts. We have sinned against God. We have broken every law of God. We've coveted. We've not loved God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. We've made idols of other things and other people. And we've never kept God's day as we ought we have not obeyed our parents. We have had hateful thoughts toward other people, which, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, are murderous thoughts. We have lied. We have borne false witness. And sin without number haunts our memory. And we know, I remember the day that I was convicted of my sin. And God convicted me. I'd never seen myself as such a sinner as I did that very day. And I felt like these men, what shall I do? I'm undone, God. I have no hope. Peter doesn't say, try to do better. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, try a little harder. Work harder at the law. He rather says, repent. That means turn, not only hate your sin, but turn from it. They were determined, you see, because they saw what an affront sin is to God. My friends, when you see the cross and you see what God thinks of sin, and, and that's the only way you can, you can truly evaluate and see sin, what does God think of sin? Go in your mind's eye to Calvary. See what he has to do in order to acquit sinners. He has to die. The Son of God has to suffer. There has to be justice against sin. Young people, God cannot, as it were, take sin like a bit of paper and screw it up and say, sin, let's put it in the bin and let's forget about it. God can't do that because God is holy and just. And Christ had to die. 
He had to become man. He had to suffer. As Peter says, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us unto God. And what is the response of the sinner's heart? Lord, I repent. I hate my sin. Help me, Lord. They were cut to the heart. They felt helpless. They cried out. Why? Because they were awakened. The Bible uses this term. They were quickened. They were awakened to their sin. And they were called to repent. And they did repent. And so Peter says, repent. Look at verse 38b. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now notice, for here is the reason. The promise is unto you and to your children and unto all that are far off. Now if you notice, the even is in italics. And that means it's not there in the original. And it says, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Who is forgiveness of sins to? Well, to as many as the Lord your God shall call. Repentance, we read in the word of God, is a gift. And what God does when he quickens somebody, he awakens them to their state before him, and they cry out, O Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now you see this term here, to you and your children, and to all that are far off. It's just another way of saying to Jew and Gentile. He is preaching to the Jews. Remember earlier he said, ye men of Jerusalem, ye men of Israel. Peter was preaching to the Jew. So he's saying, to all your children, as many as the Lord your God shall call. The promise is to who? It's not to everybody. But notice the qualifier. The qualifier there is to as many as the Lord your God shall call. Now, salvation is always by grace. God leaves most men in a state of sin and willful rejection in their sin. That's plain teaching of Scripture. There were many others here that did clearly not repent. There was a vast crowd. I'm sure in Jerusalem, thousands Thousands of people, far more than the 3,000 here. And so we notice, and we want to pick up here with regards to this. For the promise, verse 39, is unto you and to your children. Don't stop there. A lot of people like to stop there, particularly those who, who want to baptize children, who have never repented, and who may never believe, and to everybody in the world. If you were to take that literally, it means everybody in the world. Is God promised to save everyone in the world? What's the answer? No. But we read, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, as many, leave out the even there, as the Lord our God shall call. I say leave out the, the, the even there because it's in the italics. We're just being honest with the text. You see, this is why we read in Romans 5 
uh, sorry, Romans 11.5, that the promise is according to the election of grace. Election of grace. These people who were quickened in their heart, God had awoken them to their sin. Now, it's not that people are not awakened to their sin, but when God gives the gift of repentance, he gives a heart to turn. He gives a mind to turn. Just like that young prodigal in that parable of the prodigal son. It says he came to his mind, came to his sense. And you see what God does is he awakens his people to see what Christ did for them. And he only did it for them. The rest of the people don't care. Is it nothing to the world that he should die? Of course it's nothing. To the world he's just another man. But God has opened up our eyes to see that he is the son of God that loved us and gave himself for us. And this is precious. And you see these people, they repented. The promises to them, even as many as the Lord shall call. That's the answer. Now I want you to see that the calling of God is unto eternal life. If you turn with me just briefly to Romans uh, chapter 8. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we read, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now we know that verse very well, perhaps, if we've gone to church for a number of years, particularly if we're going through a trial. We say God is working all things together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called. You see, there's the word, called. God calls his people. It's an inward call. Called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate. A person is predestinated, young people. To where? Eternal life, to heaven, to be with God one day. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called. We read in the book of Acts, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Isn't that amazing? And to those whom he did predestinate, he also called. And these 3,000 were called that day. They were cut in the heart. They were called. They repented. And they said, Peter, what do we do? He said, repent. And be baptized. And did any of them say, I need to think about it? I'll go home and I'll consider what you've got to say. No, they received Peter's word as the word of God. Because the Lord Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And baptism as we will see, is a picture of what has happened. That the person is not only a new person, but it also pictures what Christ has done for that person. If you turn with me just very briefly to Romans chapter 6. 
Here we're teaching on baptism. And perhaps you're familiar, but this will do us no harm to see. Romans 6, verse 3. Paul writing to Christians here, and he says, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, like as the Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, so shall we be in the likeness of his resurrection. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, remember he was baptized in the Jordan by John. And he said at that very, shortly after that, after he was baptized, remember John at first refused to baptize him. Of course, the Lord Jesus had no sin. For him, it was not a baptism of repentance. Could never be. Had he ever a need to repent? No sin in him? No, but he said, I must be that all righteousness be fulfilled. Now, baptism, as we've read there, is a picture. Paul says we are buried with him in baptism. We, we died with him. We were baptized into Jesus Christ. We were baptized, he says, into his death. When the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to his disciples once, he said to them in Mark 10, 38, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? Speaking of his death. And be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with. He was speaking about the baptism that he was going to be undergo, the baptism of his sufferings. An immense and a, a real death. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, he did not come as a lone figure. Let me explain. Just as Adam, when Adam came into the world, he didn't come in as a lone figure. Adam was the federal representative of the whole human race. And so when Adam sinned, he plunged the whole of humanity into a lost estate. And all from Adam's sin. We have his bad record, and we have the same kind of heart as Adam. Bad heart. But when Christ came, he came not as a lone figure. He came as the federal head, as a representative of his people. That's why he is called the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's called the second Adam, or the last Adam. Death came, Paul tells us in Romans 5, by one man, Adam. But through another Adam, eternal life. So that when he went to the cross... When Jesus Christ went to that baptism of the cross that his disciples were not able to endure, he went as the federal head, as the representative of all of his people. And he suffered a death in their place. Condemned he stood, we sing sometimes. Sealed my pardon with his blood. He was there as the Lamb of God upon the cross. Even the very Son of God in the place, in the room of his people, 
And so that when he went down into the water at his first baptism, it was a picture of what he would do for his people. The water, the Jordan, was always a picture of death. And he would come out. And we read as he came out, the Spirit of God ascended upon him or descended upon him as a dove. And that's when his ministry began. But you see, it was signifying what he would do. What he would do in those three years, he would not only teach his disciples, but eventually he would lay down his life for the sheep. He would be their substitute for sin. Now here's another thing. When the Christian is saved, you read here how they were called this day, how they were pricked in the heart. That was the working of the Holy Spirit within them. And they were quickened to a new life. Do you realize that on this auspicious day, here in Acts chapter 2, a most marvelous thing took place. Sinners were taken out of darkness and into marvelous light and were now planted with the Lord. The Holy Spirit has come to live and abide in the souls of those believers that day. The work of eternity began in their hearts that very day. And it is called the planting of the Lord. Paul tells us of this in Romans 6, where I read from. Verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism, you see, your baptism, if you're baptized, pictures the old life is now dead. Into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Now you notice, he says, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now that language, Paul speaks about being planted together, is rooted in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, Isaiah 61. And we read these words concerning the Lord Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. There were sinners, there were bound to their sin. And we know that whom Jesus Christ, the Son, sets free is free indeed. And the gospel, what does it do? When it comes, it comes with the power of the Spirit and it sets a man free from an old life and brings him into a new life with the Lord. And we read, to a point unto them, verse 3, that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes. When somebody repented, they put ashes on their head. They repented in dust and sackcloth and ashes. Remember Job? The oil of joy for mourning. The soul that mourns shall know the joy of the Lord. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. They had a spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees. And here's the language of Romans 6 of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. 
So this is why Paul here in Romans 6, he likens this baptism to the planting of the Lord because the Lord has come to live in the heart of the person why they've repented. Why? And the outward proof of it, they are willing to go into the waters of baptism and say before all their friends, I have died. It's no longer I that live, but the Son of God by his Spirit now lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith, or the faith of the Son of God that loved me. Now, why would you not want to be baptized? Are you ashamed? Are you ashamed? There's only one thing we should be ashamed of is our sin. And it's a shame not to acknowledge Christ. And if one has died for us, Will we ever be ashamed of him who is the creator of the world, the maker of all things, and the one who has given us newness of life? Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Now it's interesting, study those verses in your own time. I think if you truly believe, you'll be baptized. The person that doesn't really believe, and it says I need to think about it, when Christ commands to be baptized and the person doesn't listen, I don't think that person can truly be saved. I really don't. Now, there are occasions, there are a few, that weren't baptized. We can think of one. The man on the cross, he had no choice. He was nailed to the cross, wasn't he? He couldn't get down, and the Lord gave him assurance. Now, baptism doesn't save you. But it is evidence, and it's evidencing to others that you are a different person, and you have been pricked in your heart over your sin, and you would never want to deny the Lord Jesus. You want to say to the world, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And I am, I'm not what I ought to be, but I am a different person. So there was the man on the cross. Ethiopian eunuch, as far as we know, he, he was baptized. And maybe it's quite possible, and he's the only person, it seems, that was not enjoined to a local church. Now, he may well have gone back to his homeland. There, as he went to serve the queen, maybe already there was a church there. We don't know. But you know, we can't make the exception the rule, can we? Now, as we'll see, these people that were baptized, they were baptized. Nobody argued with Peter. Nobody argued with the disciples. There was no questioning over this. And now, who was baptized that day? Look at verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Nobody else. Nobody else. Only those that received the word of God. Not whole families. This idea that Lydia's household was somehow little children is a nonsense because when the apostle there in Acts 16 
He's invited by her to the house. If she had a husband, she would have asked her husband first. So in all likelihood, she was a very wealthy seller of purple from Thyatira, a businesswoman there at Philippi. In all likelihood, her household were adult believers. And they were all baptized. Same with the Philippian jailer. Same with Cornelius' household. When you read of these households, these are people where the family believed, and, and this is the blueprint of the New Testament. Those that gladly received his word were baptized. Nobody else. The Bible teaches so clearly what we call credo baptism. Upon confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody else. This idea of baptizing somebody who hasn't even got a, a, an awakened conscience. You know, Peter speaks of baptism being the answer of a good conscience. That's what he says. Not the cleansing of the, the flesh, but he says the answer of a good conscience. So all that gladly received the word that day were baptized. So young people, that's in the first place who should be baptized. Those who repented and received the word gladly. If you say you're a Christian and if you gladly receive God's word, what did the Lord Jesus say? Blessed are they who are not offended in me. Who gladly receive his word. Who, who say and know in their hearts, I'm a, an unworthy sinner. Not am I good enough? Question is, am I bad enough? Am I a bad person? I know I'm bad. But furthermore, who are those that are baptized? Those who have repented. And repentance is a sign that there's faith. A sign that they have put on Christ already. Putting off the old Putting on the new. Who is the new? Christ. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3.26, he says, he's writing to the church there at Galatia, he says, for ye are all the children of God. How, Paul? How are we the children of God? We, Galatian Christians, he says, by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, for, here's the reason, for as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You can't, Put on Christ if you're not born again. You can't be baptized into Christ as an infant if you have not put on Christ. The words of Scripture are so clear. The Bible also says in Ephesians 4, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one kind of baptism. And that's all the New Testament knows. What is baptism? Christ died for me, and I have died, and now he lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith. And what's the proof of it? Look at the people. Look at their response to what happens next. Here you can see the response of these people. These that would gladly receive the word, we read, Peter says, verse 38, repent, be baptized. And we read, verse 40, with many other words, 
Did he testify and exhort? So that means they didn't just say, oh, thanks, Peter, thanks for the message. Uh, let, let's get baptized now and we, we want to head off. We're going to go back on our way home. Thanks for the blessing. But notice verse 40, and with many other words did he testify and exhort. In other words, they, they were there to hear the rest of the preaching of the word. And that's one of the tests whether you know you are saved or not. Whether you have an appetite for God's word. There are many people that I have refused to baptize because they have no appetite for God's word. You see them once on a Sunday or hardly at all. But look at these. They were willing to be exalted. And he says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, he's not saying you do the work. The Christian, by Christ, turns. And it's the Christian, really, who strives against the world and receives the word. Now, notice verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now notice here, this is very important. There is no disconnect between those who were baptized and added to the church. And it was done that same day. Now there are many churches today, and I really don't know, I know there's people from other churches, I don't know what the teaching is at your church but let me just say, our view here is the same as Acts chapter 2. We do not treat these two things separately. Because it's very clear from this passage, the people were added to the church the same down. Now, there are many people, and I've, in my many years, my somewhat 31 years now as a Christian, I've met people who just want to be baptized. And they think that there is a blessing in merely being baptized. That somehow that's their ticket to heaven. And they have no attachment and commitment to the local church. And all they want to do is be baptized. Give me the blessing. But you don't find that in the New Testament. Those that were baptized were added to the church. But that's not just it. As we will see, they were added to vote, to exercise church discipline, to call church offices, to do all kinds of things. Who should be in the church? Anybody? No. Only those that were repented and baptized and showed fruit, as John said, worthy or meet with repentance. Could you imagine, and I'm addressing believers here, if we had people in this church here who were members who were not saved, what kind of a pastor do you think they would want? They certainly wouldn't want a saved pastor. Could you imagine what kind of church government they would want? Hardly anything. Would they want to speak about sin? Would they want to speak about discipline? And yet there are churches, can you believe it, who have members 
who were unsaved, never committed themselves. It's quite commonplace today. The church is a regenerate body of people. Now you notice several things as we seek to try to draw to a close. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now I want you to just take you down to the very last verse. It says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Really, this is the Lord, isn't it? The problem we've got today, young people, is we've got people adding people to the church. In other words, it's not a work of the Holy Spirit. And we've got people, oh, come on, would you be a member with us? Would you join with us? That's the last thing you want, is to have to coerce and sort of do some arm twisting with people to get them into the local church. If somebody needs to be prodded and prodded and prodded and prodded and even pressured, it's more than likely that that person was never saved, was never pricked in their heart to begin with. And that really, I should say, is the last person you'd want to be in the church. But you have so much of that today. The last person. Notice what we see. Verse 22. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Two things there. Doctrine. Teaching. The apostles' doctrine. Well, we have it from this chapter all the way through the New Testament. is the doctrine. Of the apostles. What did they teach? Well, they taught the Old Testament and they applied it and they preached the gospel. The apostles taught the truth, they preached the word Peter, James, John, and then there were others. And we teach the same teaching as the apostles, no different. The apostles' doctrine, Peter's doctrine, Paul's doctrine. It's no different. They followed on. You see, the, the apostles, we're told in Ephesians 2, and the prophets, even at this time, were the foundation of the church and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone of the church. And they listened. They loved to hear the truth. They've heard the truth concerning Christ. And now they want to hear more. They continued steadfastly. Not haphazardly. But they were steadfast. The question, how steadfast are you in the word? Sadly, and I've seen it, I see it all the time. I see people who just frequent the church now and then. And they hardly make any progress. They're not steadfast. And it's little wonder you get a phone call. I've got this problem. Of course, everybody's got problems. But they don't know the word of God. And they tossed 
by every wind of doctrine today. There's so much young people on the internet that is pure nonsense. And I would warn you, there are so many who are preaching who should never be preaching, who are not committed to the local church, and who, who would never teach this anyway, baptism and membership added to the church. No. Beware. We are warned by the Lord Jesus. Are we not in Matthew chapter 24? In the last days, many false teachers shall come. We're warned also, are we not? He says that the love of the many, that's the professing many, shall wax cold. What is love? The love is the moral essence and the directive of God's law. And when you see people saying, ah, the Lord's day is not important. It's the fourth commandment. Do we believe for one millisecond that God has only left us now with nine commandments? Or do we believe that there's no commandments at all? The Bible says, for by the law cometh the knowledge of sin. And we read in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation 22 that God's people are those who keep his commandments. And only those who keep his commandments have the right to enter into the, the city. It's not by the keeping of those commandments, but those commandments prove that they are changed people, that they are the planting of the Lord. And we read in Revelation 12 that the devil is wroth, he is angry with they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I must warn you that the gates of hell are very much against the church of Jesus Christ. But the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Beware of those who do not teach in the apostles' doctrine, who do not teach from the word of God, who avoid passages of scripture. If a man cannot preach with a good conscience from a passage of scripture, he should never be in the pulpit. He should never lift up his voice to exhort anybody in the church. Now you notice... They continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. I'll ask you that. Do you love fellowship with Christians? That's a mark. John says, we know that we pass from death to life if we love the brethren. And that means you love to spend time with God's people. You have something in common. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. And you talk about sins forgiven. And you talk about the loveliness of Christ. And you, you speak about his mercies. Every day because you feel yourself a sinner and you know and you feel it every day and you experience his kindness, his love, his forgivingness upon you every day. And you can't but help but speak about him. We read in Malachi 3 that they that feared the Lord spake often one with another. And they remembered his name. The name of the Lord is his character. And it says, and the Lord wrote a book of remembrance. And he said, they shall be mine in the day that I make up my jewels. Something else? 
They continued in doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread. What's that? That's the Lord's table. You see, you don't get to the Lord's table until you're baptized and until you're in membership. The Bible is so clear on this. That's why in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul has to admonish the church where they're not dealing with sin and they're not removing a person from the Lord's table that should never have been there. It's so clear as well, Matthew chapter 18. The Lord Jesus said, if your brother sin against you, go and tell him his fault. If he doesn't hear, go and tell another. If he doesn't hear them, go and tell the church. And if he doesn't hear the church, remove him from the church. Matthew 18. Now, how do you do that if you're not a church member? You can't. Young people, let, let me say this, though. It pains me to have to deal with this subject because there are adults that have gone on for decades ignoring the teaching of God's Word, and they've hardly grown. I want to close with just a few things about church membership in a minute. But notice first, and in prayers, the prayer meeting. It's not an option. We read even before on the day of Pentecost, over 120 of them were in that upper room. And you should want to pray, not just collectively, but in your own personal, private devotions to God. Do you pray? And do you love to join in with God's people in prayer? It's not an option. And notice, and fear came upon every soul. Wonder why. The church was, look at this, fear came upon every soul. The church was being what the church should be. And people saw this is, this is just totally different to the world. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Of course, those were, again, by the apostles, not by everyone, because they had supernatural gifts. And all that believed were together and had things in common, sold their possessions and goods and parted with them all to, to, to all men as every man had need. It wasn't communism, but there was collective help. And that's how it should be. And notice verse 46, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. You can't imagine that today. Can I imagine... Can you imagine you and your friends going to church every day? Well, this was the heart of those who were saved, God's people. They had a desire to be there and breaking bread from house to house and praising God. Can you see what a vast difference this is in the church today? Well, my friends, young people, this is the blueprint of God's word. And my prayer is that God will rise up, raise up a faithful generation among you. And you might be mighty pillars in God's church. And remember this, the church might look very feeble. And even right now it does, doesn't it? But what did the Lord Jesus say? I will build my church. You don't worry about that. It says here, the Lord added, and the Lord can add. 
The Lord might save some of your friends. You just don't know. And you know, I've heard this. I'm sure you've heard it. Ah, what's the church? Look at it today. Who would want to join the church? Well, that's no excuse. Is it? If you are the Lord's, you'll prize it. Because these people have been purchased by Jesus Christ. They've been called of God. And if God has called you by his grace, and it is by his grace, it's a wonderful thing. Why would you neglect such a privilege? It is an awesome privilege, my friend, to belong to the church of the living God. To be counted, Acts 2.41, to be added to, Acts 2.47, to be called upon to select a pastor, Acts 15.22, Acts 6.1 and 6, to appoint deacons and elders, to be officially gathered together, Acts 14.27, to carry out church discipline, Matthew 18, verse 17, to observe the Lord's communion table, 1 Corinthians 11 was the church. Paul wrote to a church there. But ultimately to be in glory with him. And let me say this. When you read the book of the Revelation, it's written to seven churches. It's not written to, to individuals. But it's written to those that have truly, formally, and publicly joined themselves to the body of of Jesus Christ. And I pray God will impress these things upon our minds. If you're not saved, I pray God might convict you, might open your eyes to see your sin, and that you might too repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.